this morning. This is your first time here. Anybody? Raise your hand. Anybody? Any new folks there? Okay, I'm not trying to hold you out. Just let's give them a hand, man. I'm glad to see somebody. I, my, my wife and I are, uh, my name's Martin, for those of you I haven't met, and we generally do the, the children's ministry, and so we don't have an opportunity to be out here all that often, and, and, uh, but we always talk about how cool it is to see so many new faces and so many new people coming, and, and, and so, you know, this time of year we get visitors, tourists, people coming in, visiting, but it's really great. I'm glad you decided to come here this morning, and, and for those of you that have been coming that I haven't gotten a chance to meet, it's, it's really great that you're become, you know, coming and being a part of our fellowship, and I, and I appreciate that myself. But I just kind of wanted to start with some prayer, and then we'll get into the study. So, um, Father, we come to you, and again, we just thank you, Lord, that you have made us a fellowship here in Canyon City. And I pray, first and foremost, that we would be a light to this community and um, as Curtis was sharing about the youth this, this summer and, and just them coming together and, and, and um, seeking you together, um, the various different churches, I just pray you bless that. I pray it's so fruitful and so, um, just so, um, well, again, just, just that it bears fruit for your kingdom, that these kids would be um, such a light to this community and in their schools and, and that they would realize that um, it doesn't matter what church you go to if they serve you and they love you and that they could uh, and just just be effective for your kingdom, Lord, and we just lift that up to you. Lord, I want to pray for those who are sick in our fellowship, our friends and family members and those who are, are just not feeling good this morning. We pray for your healing. We pray for your blessing on them, for your comfort, and uh, we all know it's just hard to when you don't feel good physically, and we just lift them up to you, Lord. God, I pray for the missionaries that we support in various different areas and um, for Nolan and Marie in Mexico and, Lord, we lift up Milan and Zita in the Czech Republic. Lord, we pray for, um, as again was mentioned, uh, Bev and, and uh, the ministry there in Uganda. And, and while we're at it, we just lift up Sean and his family that they would be able to serve and to, to be blessed and to bless and just... We just lift up that ministry there, and for all these, these guys that are out and, and giving their lives away, we just pray for your provision for them, for your protection over them, and often uh, dangerous and, and uh, just difficult environments, Lord. God, we lift up just your church nationally, internationally, that you would continue to strengthen your church, that your church would stand and be what you want it to be, that it would be your bride pure and undefiled and ready to meet you when you return, Lord. God, I uh, just lift up the families in our church and pray that uh, as husbands, that husbands would love their wives and cherish them and, and truly uh, live sacrificially for them. For wives, Lord, that they would um, just be the women you want them to be and, and be um, just love and support and be there for their families and in, in whatever ways, those that work outside of the home, that, Lord, you would help them to manage their time in a way that, um, you know, they don't feel too overextended. I know that's hard for, for mothers sometimes that have to work, and I just lift them up to you too. Lord, we lift, finally, I lift up our nation and our government. And, Lord, as we are going to be talking about just your light in this world, we see our government and our nation just becoming darker and darker. 
And we just pray for those who do know you in this country to, to stand for what is right, to be righteous, to not become absorbed into this culture, but that they would stand and be, um, again, the salt and light that you call us to be. And for our study this morning, I just pray you would help us to, to learn more of you, to draw closer to you, and to, uh, to hear your voice from your word this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. So this morning, we are going to be uh, basically in the Gospel of John, a few different passage, passages here. Um, the Gospel of John is different. It's different from the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And these Gospels are very similar in some of their regards. Even some Bible critics tend to think one was copied from the other, and we know that's not true. But they're independent accounts, but they're complementary of one another, providing a synopsis, if you will, of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. John also does that, but in a different way. It stands kind of apart from the other Gospels in some significant ways. And really, it stands apart from, you know, world literature. Hold on, my mouth is really dry. So, when we look at John, it's very, uh, I mean, some of the events are even recorded within John that, that aren't in the other, other Gospels. And John has a specific agenda in writing John, the things that he's trying to show about Jesus, uh, Jesus to teach us about Jesus, and uh, from kind of a, from a unique perspective. You know, he chooses to record certain events in a detailed and exhaustive way. And the Gospel of John opens with this, essentially what's like this cosmic, poetic representation of Jesus um, and defines Christ from the very beginning as the pre-existent eternal God, the creator, the revelation, the absolute manifestation of the divine and the literal light of the world. He says things like, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's this really amazing kind of abstract statement that he's, that he's setting the stage for this Christ, for this Jesus, as obviously more than a man. And the other Gospels are, are right there, too, in terms of um, how they represent Jesus is, is obviously consistent. But it doesn't start, the Gospel of John doesn't start with the birth of Christ. It doesn't start with his genealogy. It starts with this primordial, pre-created realm of Genesis, starting really with the first phrase in John is the first phrase in Genesis, the first words of the Bible, in the beginning. And he places Jesus right beside the Father in, you know, creation before the world um, existed. And it's because of these differences, like I was kind of alluding to, that many critics have such a hard time with this gospel and the way in which Jesus is presented. And like I said, don't be mistaken, all of the gospels, gospels present Christ as more than just a man, more than just a teacher, more than just a philosopher or a prophet. He's clearly divine and sinless and perfect he is the self-resurrecting, transcendent Savior of the world in all of the Gospels. 
But John presents Jesus in such a radical way that it seems inconceivable to many who only can conceive of Jesus as just another religious figure. So I'm just kind of setting the stage there. But one of the constant themes throughout John, starting from the very beginning, is that Jesus is the light of the world. And this is a theme that Jesus will continue to teach on throughout the, the Gospel of John, something that we'll keep hearing um, throughout his ministry there. It's first, uh, and, and, it's, and it's Jesus as the light often contrasted with the darkness of the world, the darkness of chaos, the darkness of our own understanding, and with that darkness, really a total blindness to the spiritual reality that's all around us. Jesus, he's first recorded as, as talking about this concept um, to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. Some of you may remember that account of Nicodemus, the famous verse, John 3, 16, that we all know that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Interesting, I mean, Jesus was alive. He's saying that when he's saying that. It's a prophetic statement at that point. We quote it now, and we, we kind of quote it looking back. But when, you know, think about that. When he's talking about that to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is clearly kind of on the right track, but he's in darkness. He came to Jesus at night. They're talking at night. And, and, and Jesus begins to, I think, use even that setting that they're in at that time to, to, uh, to teach Nicodemus. So I just wanted to read a few verses in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, they come to the light. And see, he's contrasting, and that is so human, isn't it? And we love the darkness rather than the light. Again, we have to kind of set the stage for Nicodemus. It is probably late at night. Maybe he's taken kind of a small lantern, weaving his ways through the alleys and the back streets, making sure he wasn't being uh, seen or followed. He's probably disguised. He's not wearing all his pharisaical robes and all the finery that he would normally be seen with in the temple. That's at least what I imagine. Maybe he's got a big hood on. He finds out where he is. He knocks on the door. He's like, is Jesus here? Is Jesus here? Can I see Jesus? They let him in. And, you know, there's maybe, maybe there's a couple people sleeping over here. Maybe some guys talking. Some of the apostles, disciples hanging out. You know, is there somewhere we can talk? I'm sure he didn't even want to really talk in front of the other people. Is there somewhere we can go and just, I have some questions. And it's kind of, you know, you, you get this picture, this dark kind of scene. And then Jesus, within his teaching, he, you know, he's like, 
you come to me in the dark. I mean, there's obviously that thing of you are afraid to be seen with me right now. And, but, Jesus, but Nicodemus does say this awesome thing. He says, we know. So he's coming kind of as a representative of, of some of the other leaders, apparently. He says, we know that you've come from God, that you're a teacher come from God, because no one else can do the things that we keep seeing you do. We can't do it. No one else can do it. Clearly, you're from God. You're a teacher come from God. But we know that Jesus was so much more. And Nicodemus couldn't see because he wasn't able to. And the, really the first thing he says to... So he, Nicodemus asks that question, and the first thing Jesus responds is, you've got to be born again. What? I mean, what does that have to do with me being a teacher? <laughs> you being a teacher? And he kind of just, Jesus goes right to the heart of it. You've got to be born again. You can't see. You think I'm a teacher and you, you know that I'm from God, but you're, you're, not, you're not getting the whole picture here. You must, be see, you must be born again. You can't see the kingdom of God. So right away, the issue is birth, life, and seeing and perceiving. That without being born spiritually, we're completely blind in regards to the kingdom of God. Just like we're blind in the womb as human beings, if we require physical birth for our eyes to function, we're blind to the things of the Spirit until we're born of the Spirit. I knew we were doing the baby dedication this morning. I had uh, some inside knowledge there. So I kind of worked that into my study. But, you know, this beautiful baby, Emery, with her big blue eyes, only a short time ago had no concept of what her parents or siblings or the world around her looked like. But every day that she grows and matures, her understanding of the world around her grows and becomes more complete. Would you agree with that, Justin? And that's the way it is with us spiritually. But I would also say that's not to say that as unregenerate physical beings, we don't have any capacity for spiritual stimuli. And let me just, so before Emery was born, she could hear her mother's voice. She could hear her father's voice. She could hear music and the voices of her sisters. She could feel and touch and think. And we know more and more um, with the scientific advances that we've had, how complex and developed babies are before they're born. But until Emery was actually born and came into the light of the world, her interpretation of all these sounds and sensations was incomplete. Right? I mean, they've, they've done studies where if you play music for uh, babies, I don't know if if Lori did this or not. Did she play Beethoven with the baby? <laughs> that kind of stuff. But, you know, that there's, there's this thing where they've proven, even if the mother talks while, you know, before the baby's born, that, that it, it's beneficial to them somehow. God, God, that's what God's doing to unbelievers. That's what God was doing to me. He was talking. He was leading us. He was providing us with um, clues and had a desire for us to be born into his family. While we lived in the darkness of the world and our own sinful, darkened state, that voice of God, though, is muffled. His attributes are blurry and confusing. 
the miracles that happen around us every day appear to be rationalized coincidences. The majesty and inexplicable complexity and perfection of creation becomes random acts of chance. And that drives me crazy today. You know, I, I'm a homeowner now, have been for some time. I planted every tree that's on my property. When we moved in, our tree, you know, our, it was bare dirt. That's the Cornell way, bare dirt. Chuck's back there. And you know, so all these trees I have an affinity for, I have a connection to. And so every spring they start to come out. And I'm just, you know, every tree does it so differently. And it's just so amazing to see, you know, I have a maple tree that, you know, from one little bud, all these leaves come out. And if you really, I never paid attention to that before I planted a tree. You know, you, one day they're all green and one day they, all the leaves fall off and that's the way it is. And, uh, but just that thing that we, when you're a child of God and you understand he's doing all that, it takes on this great significance when you have eyes to see. But when you don't, the world around you is just this chaotic and cruel and confusing place to exist. The pain, you know, I would say um, life itself Really, and our kids are being taught this, and, and our culture is teaching this, that life itself is a cruel accident with no point other than our temporary gratification of every primal instinct. And the pain, the suffering, the malaise, the lack of fulfillment, that's just part of our long march towards an inevitable and pointless death. That's depressing, isn't it? Now, maybe some, that's the way I used to look at life. Some of you may have had a more optimistic persuasion. But really, when it gets down to this existential type of reality, like what are we here for? Why are we having to go through these things? Why is the world the way it is? And there's no answer for that until you've been born into God's family. Now, in John 8 and 9, we see Jesus coming back to this point of him being that very light. And again, we're, we're kind of using these terms light and blindness, light and darkness, and being able to see. You know, clearly, even if you have perfect eye vision, 20-20, which I don't anymore, and you're in a pitch black room, you're blind, right? We all on the same page there? Okay. So that's why I keep kind of going back and forth between that. But apart from him, Jesus teaches us over and over again, we exist in a perpetual and inescapable nighttime, blackness, darkness. John 8, you guys can turn there. Um, we find Jesus engaged in a war of words with the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, verses 2 through 11 recount the time when they brought a condemned woman before him, caught in the very act of adultery, in order, it says, to test him, to see what Jesus would do. And this was one of those instances in which the Pharisees had set this all up, and they thought that they had Jesus cornered, that regardless of how he answers, they're going to have something against him. That if he says... Um, because the law said, I mean, this is an open and shut case. Whatever he does, whatever he says, they'll have reason to accuse him and to be rid of him once and for all. The law says stone her. She's caught in the act of adultery. The law said stone her. 
And they say, what do, you, what do you have to say about that? The law says this, what do you have to say about it? Now, I think it's very interesting. I mean, if you look at how they set this up and how they uh, went about trying to uh, catch Jesus, it's a really interesting kind of testament into their understanding of Jesus' personality and who he was. They knew he was righteous, right? I mean, he asked him one time, he stood up before everybody, he says, which of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you? And nobody could say a word. They knew he was righteous. They knew he was powerful. They knew he was working miracles, that he was teaching in a way that no one had ever taught before. They knew that he was doing amazing things that only with the help of God he would be able to do. So they knew he was godly. And I think this is really the key. They knew that he loved people and was in the practice of personally absolving their sins and forgiving and often proving his ability to forgive through healing. Remember he said to this one man who was lowered through the roof into a house, he said, your sins are forgiven. Oh my gosh, did you hear what he just said? He forgives us. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? He says, how about this? Get up and walk. Boom. And it's done, right? Which is easier to say? And so he proved that not only that was his heart, that was his intent, but that was his ability. And he had the power to do that on earth. So they knew all these things about him, but despite all these things that they knew, they wanted to destroy him. This proves their desire for darkness. Remember that in John 1 they, or John 3? They loved the darkness rather than the light. And that's where these guys were at. That they wanted death instead of life. If he says, let her go, they accuse him of breaking the law. If he condemns her and advocates stoning, he appears hypocritical and cruel and part of the very oppressive religious system he had stood against, which is going to diminish him in the eyes of the crowds, right? The, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, these people that he was ministering to, they're going to see him as part of this system, part of this problem that's already cast them out and given up on them. But at like other times, there's a third and unexpected option, one that they could not foresee due to their spiritual blindness. We're told Jesus wrote on the ground. So he bends down. They're accusing him. There's this lady there. And it's, and it's very, it's kind of funny, right? I mean, I, I imagine if I was telling my kid to do something, and I'm, I'm sitting there talking to him, and he just walked over and started writing on the ground. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing? What is this, some teenage thing that you're doing? <laughs> Why are, you know, and he's almost dismissive, but he's writing on the ground. It gets their attention. Many have speculated what it may have been. We don't know. Perhaps it was passages from the law, such as Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Perhaps it was dates and times or names and places which coordinated with the sins of her accusers. I've heard that taught, that he was writing down you know, references to these guys' sins. And in the context of this story, that you could see where that could be the case too. Perhaps it was a cross. Maybe he was just drawing a cross on the ground. And then he stood up and he faced them all and he looked straight into their hateful eyes and he stood between them and this lady 
And he basically gave them permission to kill her with one condition. Who knows? The one, the one of you guys that has no sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And it says they all walked away, beginning with the oldest, that they were convicted in their heart. They knew they couldn't. I think when you look at this too, Jesus could have picked up a stone. He was the only one there that could have. They had the right to, and he didn't. And he said, if you guys want to kill this lady, go ahead. One condition, and they couldn't do it. Now, I go through this story to says right after this encounter, after being confronted by the darkness of religious zealotry, of true misogyny and hatred of women, and I say that because many people have brought up the fact, where's the, the man in this situation? That these, women, that these guys, you know, we hear that word thrown around a lot today. These guys are the epitome of that. Right after being attacked by these blind leaders of the blind, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he's telling them, if they follow him, they can be able to see. And this starts this entire discourse culminating again in the Jews getting ready to stone Jesus. I mean, this happened a couple times, right? He says something, they, start, they pick up the rocks, and he's just gone. <laughs> but it's right after he makes one of the clearest declarations of his divine nature when he claims to be the very I am, the uncreated, preexistent God, without beginning or end, the deliverer of Israel, the one to true God and the Savior of the world. And for that, even though he had proved this over and over and over again, for that, they wanted to stone him. And you know, in reality, if he wasn't the I am, they should have stoned him. You know, but they didn't. They couldn't. Um, chapter 9 opens with Jesus after leaving the temple. Apparently from this same, it's almost a continuation of chapter 8. So he's having this discourse. He... leaves the temple because things get to this, you know, this, this point where they're not hearing, they just want to kill him, and he heads out of the temple, and it seems like right away he sees a man sitting there blind from birth. Spoiler, anybody know what happens? Jesus sees a man <laughs> sitting there blind from birth. He keeps walking by, he ignores him. No, he, spoiler, like I said, he heals him, and he regains his sight. This is truly one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's this kind of Judean law and order. Okay, I mean, it's this miracle, and these Jews are going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to figure this out. And we don't really see any other miracle where they, it, it receives this type of scrutiny in the Scripture. And it's just this great, this great time. We see this man kind of... Um, Starting out, again, is this, this blind man. We never know his name. We never know anything else about him. We, his parents kind of come in, but um, we see his progression to where through 
interacting with Jesus and, and through Jesus doing this work in his life, he's standing before the, the Sanhedrin or the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and giving this great discourse and this bold defense of the miracle that has happened to him and even of the, um, um, you know, the reputation, I guess, of Jesus and who he was. Again, it's this, it's this incredibly scrutinized miracle Oftentimes we would see miracles happen, and uh, the Jews knew about it, but they just kind of let it go. This one, they're just, it seems like they're just determined to somehow prove that this um, either didn't happen, or they're just, they're just kind of in denial, and, they, they're, and it's very frustrating because this great miracles happen right before their eyes, and really before the whole community. But this is, let me just kind of back up, so... Jesus heals him and regains his sight right after this discourse, right after talking about he's the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll be able to see. And right after that, what does he do? He goes out and he finds this, the most hopeless case, a man blind from birth, and he heals him and he can see. And the thing I love about this is Jesus backs it up. Jesus backs it up. He's in there, and he's talking, and he's giving all these things, and he's saying all this stuff, but then he goes out, and he acts on it, and he proves it. And this is just something I love about Jesus and who he is, because these days, I mean, our heads are exploding with people talking, with people telling us what we should be doing, with writing books, with radio shows, with television shows, that we're in this glut of media, and there's a lot of talking out there. Right? I mean, on, on both sides of the political thing and, and, and really within the church, too, there's so many different um, things coming at us all the time. There's so much talk, books and sermons and teachings and radio shows and, like I said, videos, programs, summits, retreats and meetings, but many fewer who actually walk the walk. Jesus talked, but he walked the walk. He backed it up. And I think, man, what a lesson for us. What a lesson for us. Maybe less talking, more doing. But if you're going to talk, walk the walk. Jesus never backs down. He always backs up what he says, and he always says what he means. And I just wrote a note. Make, make us like that. Make us like him in that. I think that's really a desperately lacking thing in our culture as a whole, right? There's a lot of ideas being thrown out. There's a lot of philosophies. You know, we know that I read this article last week or week before where, you know, you go to Seattle. It's one of these uh, really super left-wing liberal bastions of philosophy. And here's how we should... Well, we know that their city is it's just it's really being overrun by this terrible homelessness problem. And there's all these other things going on because of some of their social stances. I'm not going to get into all that politically. But these guys want to, you know, all the tech industry and the boom and, and the guys with all the money and everything and everything going on, and they've got it all figured out. But you know what they did? They went out and tested the water out in the bay, and the shellfish out there are high on opioids. Okay, so <laughs> to me, I mean, how much drugs do you have to be doing for the shellfish to test positive for opioids? That's just amazing to me. So they're all figured out over here. And they're telling you all these things about what's right and social justice and all these things and, and all their ideas of, of, of life and everything. But they're, but they're all, so many people in that are dependent 
on drugs and dependent on whatever other therapy, and they're miserable. And that's just the reality. I think that if we live and stand and, and are reliant on Christ, that's, gonna, that's just going to speak so much volumes in our culture today. And again, you know, if, if I'm, I'm not saying that there's not a time and place to take prescription painkillers and that kind of thing. What I'm saying is, is that there's, when your life becomes dependent on that, what does that say about your state of mind? What does that say about your heart? What does that say about where you're at with the Lord? Because I don't think that's his best plan for his people. So in chapter 9, let's just read verses 1 through 5. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the first thing, Jesus saw him. Jesus is walking out and he sees this guy. Obviously, he could not see Jesus. Jesus can see him. He can't see Jesus. He took notice of him, and apparently so did his disciples, except what the disciples saw was sin. Who sinned, him or his parents? But where they saw sin, Jesus saw opportunity. Where they saw disability and shame, Jesus saw a new life and hope in the glory of God. While they wanted to debate about some obscure theological idea regarding sin and punishment, Jesus wanted to get to work. He was ready to get to work. He saw that problem, and he was ready to glorify God through that situation. It's another thing I just love about Jesus. While Jesus is truly the greatest teacher in the history of the world, the greatest philosopher, the greatest thinker, Jesus was about getting his hands dirty. You know, literally. Um, In this case, he will use mud to heal this guy's eyes. And there's another time when the Pharisees harassed Jesus simply about not washing his hands. I did a study on that some time ago where they were so hung up on the fact that Jesus had dirty hands that they missed everything else. But here again, Jesus is acting. He's not just talking. He's doing what needs to be done. He sees a situation, and he doesn't see all the negative garbage associated with what that could be. Again, we can be like this as Christians, can't we? We can debate all these ideas and all these... um, you know, fine theological points. Many churches have been divided on some very minor things. But what are we doing with one another? What are we, how are we uniting with one another to do the work of the kingdom? So much of that stuff proves to be just a distraction. And really, it's the enemy's plan to keep us divided like that. To see the, the negative, to see the hurdles and the obstacles, and not to see the opportunities that God's put before us. 
And really, I know a lot of you guys, this is something that we can all respect, a man who's willing to get in there and make things happen. Jesus wasn't, was that type of man. He wasn't one who would constantly delegate or defer or deflect or put burdens on others, but one who saw problems, again, as opportunities, who saw crises as ways to show God's glory. And apparently, he saw these things as the work he was given to do. He said, we've got to do the work that I was sent to do while I'm here because night's coming when no one can work. So let's just, just a brief synopsis. I'm not going to go through the entire thing this morning. But he saw him. He made mud, and he rubs it in his eyes, and then he tells him, go, wash. I think it's interesting the man makes no request of Jesus. There's not recorded that, you know, we see other instances where people come to Jesus to be healed that are crying out to, to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, heal me. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. We don't hear any of that from him. This is all being initiated from Jesus. I see this this. This wretched man, oh, I'm not going to get emotional. Come on. So this wretched man who was like myself, just lost, just blind in the darkness. And that's what this guy is. I mean, he's blind from birth. He has no hope. And he's just sitting there. Those are the people that Jesus is, is reaching out to um, from, his, from his own being, not from, not from anything this guy is doing or deserves or anything. But in any case, he makes no request. He doesn't cry out or plead his case or anything. Jesus sees him, and that's all it took. Again, Jesus didn't see a poor, blind beggar. Jesus saw what this man was to become, an obedient, bold, faithful, articulate, capable man, willing to stand and testify. And, and really, this is amazing, right from the start, even to suffer persecution for Jesus. Remember, I don't know if how familiar you guys are with this story, but he gets kicked out of the church, basically. He gets excommunicated. He gets thrown out. He doesn't care. He's willing. He's going to stand for what's right. That's who Jesus saw there. The disciples just saw some wretched, you know, hopeless case that, that deserved what he got because somebody had sinned. Man, let's, let, let's be like Jesus in that and not like the disciples in this instance. People take notice immediately when he's healed. Is that the guy that I've seen there? I mean, uh, the, the, the community is obviously very familiar with this guy. He's been around. He's kind of a fixture. People have uh, become used to him being this, this, you know, poor old dude that, you know, probably somebody sinned and, oh, okay, you know, give him a, some money every once in a while. But people take notice that it's him. And they begin to debate, and it's kind of funny, like he's almost like a third party that are conversation. These people are talking. Is is this the guy that used to sit over here? I don't know. Is it him? I, you know, and they're having this conversation, and he's over here. Yeah, yes, it's me. It's me. I'm the guy. I'm the one. <laughs> How did this happen? The man Jesus put mud on my eyes, and he healed me. And that's the first acknowledgement that this man has of who Jesus is. That's how he refers to him, the man Jesus. And that's that first glimmer of light. You know, we're talking about that first glimmer of spiritual realization. The man Jesus did this to me. Well, immediately they, they run him into trial. They start drilling him with all these questions. And the Pharisees are divided, you know, because, again, they've got these hang-ups. And, he, you know, he made mud on the Sabbath, so clearly he's not of God. And the other guys say, how, how can something so amazing happen that's not of God? And they're, and they're divided, and they, they, keep, uh, they ask him questions. Um, 
They asked the man again, what happened? Um, they, well, they asked the man, who do you say Jesus, you know, what do you say about this Jesus? What do you say about this guy who did this thing? He says, at this point, we see him take a step from man to he is a prophet. He's a prophet. He's got a unique anointing, a calling from God. So he goes from just the man Jesus to the prophet. And again, we see his eyes coming a little bit more into focus, his spiritual eyes. Then they bring in his parents. Because they're still trying to get to the bottom of this. Again, I hope you're, some of you are somewhat familiar with the story. They bring in his parents. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How did he get healed? What's going on here? Who is this guy? So they drill the parents. The parents are apparently kind of, you know, they don't want to get thrown out of the church. They don't want to make too big a deal about it. All they say is, yes, this is our son, and yes, he's, he can see. He used to be blind. He was born blind. Beyond that, we don't know what. Um, they bring in the guy a second time, and I will read this little part because this is just this amazing discourse. They bring him in again. They haven't really, they've, they're trying to get this guy to glorify God and to, um, they don't want to give Jesus the credit. Let's just say that. They don't want to give Jesus the credit for this miracle, and they're trying to find some way around it, and they bring him in again. And I'll start in chapter 9, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I mean, this is just this is just classic trash talk, isn't it? I've already told you. What are you talking about? Do you want to believe too? And uh, I love that part. (laughs) And you know, and they reviled him, saying, "You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses." But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. That testimony, that, that, that truth. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Again, this judgment, this condemnation. But look, where, look at the progression of this man. I think this could almost be a template of what we're to be as Christians. We get saved, we have this understanding that, that Jesus loves us, but he begins to do these things in our life. A lot of you have these amazing testimonies. I have my own testimony. That's something that God wants to use, just like he used in this man's life, in the lives of other people. I was down, I like to paddleboard, I'm down at the river, and um, there's these guys down there, and, and um, I know a couple of them, kind of by name, vaguely by face. I have like Jesus on my helmet down there and stuff, and 
And, you know, I got to have this wonderful conversation with this guy the other day, and we're just about life and death and about how I was an addict, and I got my, you know, and I, I've been, got sober and all this kind of stuff. And, and God wants to use wherever you're at, whatever he's doing in your life, to glorify him and to bring others into that light of understanding that there is a purpose to this life. There is a reason that God's created the world and created us in it. And that's what God was doing with this man. He took this, really what the world would look at as this castaway, this piece of garbage, and he saw something more, and he did this great work in him. And we just see that progression. That progression should be happening in our lives, too. And I pray it continues to happen in my life. You know, I feel oftentimes a lot of regret that I haven't made the most of a lot of those opportunities. But now, we see in this man, when he's cast out, that was probably a strange feeling, wasn't it? I mean, this wonderful thing has happened to me, and all I've gotten is a bunch of grief. Does that ever feel like that? You do something good for somebody, and it's like you just regret it. <laughs> it's like it opened this door to all this other stuff. I mean, and you know it was the right thing to do, or you took a right stand for something, and all you get is grief. I've had those instances before. But again, that progression, and now we see this man, the light is shining in his life, it, it kind of just full blast, but then there's got to be this question, why? Why did this happen to me? I was just sitting there minding my own business. I was blind. I was happy being blind. Now I've got, now, and all this stuff is happening to me. I got kicked out of the church. I had this thing, but I think still we can see in, in the way that he stands up and the way that he deals with this. But still, that moment when he gets cast out, you just wonder what, is, what was going through his mind. But we know that Jesus came to him in that moment. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And that's that. That's that, you know, completion of that work that from man to prophet to Lord. And Jesus goes on to say, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Again, that's what, you know, I, again, at this point where he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You know, we've got to be in that place not just once, not just when we first get saved. That's something, that's, that's every single day in every single circumstance. But now he can say at that point that he can see both physically and spiritually that once he was blind, but now he can see. Proverbs 4.8 eight is a verse that I like. It says, The path of righteousness is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And I pray that's where we're at today, all of us, that we're shining brighter and brighter. Not blind, not stumbling in the darkness of our own desires or the night of the philosophy and ideals of this world, but enlightened in him and by his word and by our love for one another and for those who are still blind, that when we see problems, we would see opportunities and that we would want to get to work. 
that we would want to do the works of him who called us while it's daytime. Um, when I was first studying these chapters and thinking about what to teach on, I kept coming back to that verse in 9, chapter 4. And it's, it's this somewhat enigmatic little phrase that Jesus says, if you want to look at that verse. But he says, Night is coming when no one can work. And I just kept thinking about that. Lord, what is that? What is that night? What is that time when no one can work? And like I said, I've really been meditating on this and, and praying about truly what that means. I, obviously, it has, a, a, I think, a couple different applications. But personally, I've experienced a lot of death in the last few weeks. My cousin-in-law, my cousin's wife, just passed away after a long battle with cancer. You know, she left behind two beautiful daughters and lots of family and friends. That's back in North Carolina. A colleague of mine, another appraiser, someone I've known and respected for 15 years, he went in for a routine medical procedure. He passed away. And on a search and rescue mission recently, I was tasked with retrieving a man's body who had rolled off of uh, Phantom Canyon Road. I don't know if you guys heard about that accident. There was a man driving up Phantom Canyon Road and went into the canyon. If you guys have been up on that road, you know that's a, it's hard to walk away from. So on that mission, uh, you know, I was tasked with a couple other guys of actually putting this gentleman into the bag. So, I mean, I've come face-to-face -face with mortality in the last few weeks. I've been forced to consider the shortness of our time here on earth and how each opportunity we have to serve, to bless others, to testify and witness, and to just really just to enjoy and embrace the life that God has given us, each one of those moments is so precious. A lot of you, I'm sure, can relate to that. I'm sure a lot of you have experienced things like that. And what a waste when we let these opportunities pass us by. And guys, many times we don't get another chance. That's another thing I've noticed. You know, this, this guy that's driving up Fannin Canyon Road, I don't, he, had a, he had food in his car, he had things in his car, he had plans that day, and maybe he had thought about doing something nice for somebody else or this something, and we don't, you know, who knows? But he's he not getting any of those opportunities back. This isn't a scary thing. These, are, these things can, they come and go every day, but those opportunities that God gives us every day, they're precious. What a waste when we go on day after day, discontent or holding grudges or having some petty hang-up about one thing or another, when we waste time judging others like the disciples were apt to do, when the, uh, like the Pharisees and their religious zeal condemning others, not serving and loving as our precious Lord demonstrated us time and again. We must work the works not to gain God's favor, not to gain God's salvation or mercy, but because that's who he created us to be. That's how we're going to be happy, guys, by doing what he created us to do by being who he created us to be. And for each one of you, that's all different. My life's not the template for you and vice versa. But God has a plan for each and every one of us to be working the works of him while it's daytime. Because night is coming. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Does anybody know? For what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. That we should walk in them. We do not work for salvation. We work because of salvation. What is the work that God has for you? To believe in him, to trust in him, to allow yourself to be conformed to his image. And I thought about this. I know I want specifics, right? We want like a a, a to-do list. But what I know is when we're willing and available, God is faithful to complete his work in us and through us. You know, like I said, night is coming. I think when Jesus says that, there's night coming for us individually. Like I talked about, we're mortal. We only have so many time, days and, and opportunities here on this planet. But night is falling on this world. I mean, look around. I mean, it seems to me that the last rays of God's mercy are, are still shining on this earth. The sun is dipping behind the horizon. And it doesn't take much. I think, I think even the world understands that there's a judgment due. Why is every movie about destroying the world? <laughs> right? How many movies are there? There's something in our heart, there's something in our consciousness that understands that the world is coming to a close. Night is coming. You know, none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. But let's embrace the rest of our time here with joy, with hope, with excitement and love and peace and with a full expectation of God's great work in these final days. And we have nothing to lose, guys. Nothing to lose. God has provided an abundant entrance into his kingdom that we can live in now and that we're going on you know, to a better place in here, for sure. And this is something that just, you know, when I, when I, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. It's daytime. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day God's got something every single day. And I'm trying to apply that in my own life and whatever what it is. If it's at your job, if it's at your, you know, I'm looking at Tyler. He just caught my eye. If it's playing sports, if it's um, your hobbies, your family, of course, all these things. But to whatever place you find yourself in, understand that God sees you, um, sees something greater than that, has a greater plan beyond that. Um, I guess I'm about to finish up. The worship team, are they coming? I'm going to do another last song? We usually do. (laughs) I don't want to buck tradition too bad. I'll get in trouble, so. But again, I just, I, I mean, there's so much misery. There's so much problems. There's so many things. But again, let's be like Jesus. Let's see those things that those, as, as opportunities. Let's see crises as ways that we can um, bring God glory somehow. That's difficult sometimes. I understand that. You know, I want to get back and see my cousin, again, whose wife passed away back in North Carolina. It's a hard time. It's hard to tell my cousin right now, be joyful in the Lord. Your wife just passed away. You know, God has something good out of that. I don't know what it is, but if I can go back there and give him some light for a short time, 
that somehow impart that hope to him. That's what we're here for, right? That's what we're here to say that, yeah, this is a bad situation. They're believers. I mean, my cousin is totally assured in his heart that his wife's in heaven and that he's going to meet her there someday, and that's wonderful. But it's a hard thing to be going through for him. But we need to be there for, 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 those, for those instances. That's why God has us here, to be the light of the world. You know, Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. I wanted to touch on that real quick. Do you know that he's not out of the world? He hasn't left the world. First John says, because as he is, as he is, as he's alive, is the implication there. As he is, so also are we in this world. We are to be here so that he can still work through us in this world. And he said it, right? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So that's my encouragement this morning. God bless you guys.